0: The Anthropocene describes how humanity has radically intruded into deep time, the vast timescales that shape the earth system and all life forms that it supports. In Anthropocene Poetics, David Farrier asks how poetry can help us think about and live in the Anthropocene by reframing our intimate relationship with geological time. David is Professor of Literature and the Environment at the University of Edinburgh. And he's joined here in conversation by Adam Dickinson, who is the author of four books of poetry, including Anatomic. Adam is a professor in the English department at Brock University in Ontario. This edited conversation was recorded in July 2020. Hello, my name is Adam Dickinson, and I'm here with David Ferrier, uh, who wrote a book called Anthropocene Poetics. And we're going to talk to you a little bit about poetry in the Anthropocene today. David, how would you define the Anthropocene for our listeners? What does this word mean?
1: Hi, Adam. Uh, The Anthropocene describes this unique condition we find ourselves in, um, in the midst of a whole range of planetary ecological crises. It it describes the um, unprecedented influence that we have over the planet that's been home to um, humanity. Uh, for hundreds of thousands of years, the fact that now we not only inhabit the planet, but also have a role in in determining how the Earth system works. So the Anthropocene describes this uncanny, um, disorienting sense that we are, I guess you would say, kind of say, agents. Um, at a planetary level, you know that we're having an effect on how the how the Earth system functions in a way that will leave legacies uh, for the very deep future.
0: And is there agreement on when this Anthropocene begins, or uh, is there? Uh, can we point to a particular time? There's
1: consensus. There's not total um, agreement initially when when people began to talk about the idea of an Anthropocene and and, and the era of the human. If you like, in, in geological terms, they began to talk about, you know, the middle of the 19th century, the onset of the Industrial Revolution, as a as a likely starting point, um, you know, a, a hinge moment. More latterly, consensus has grown up around the middle of the 20th century, around 1950 or so, when we see a huge spike in uh, all kinds of forms of of, of consumption, uh, fossil fuel use. Um, it's a period sometimes known as the Great Acceleration. We see a huge increase in, in plastic consumption from this point onwards. Um, nuclear testing starts um, around this time. So the, the consensus tends to um, coalesce around 1950 or so on. But there are other arguments that, that, that pose other dates. One particularly interesting one suggests that you know, we need to look at the beginning of the colonization of, of the Americas. Uh, when we have all of a sudden kind of semi-organized migrations of, of, of people and species across continents and across oceans and the devastations that follow uh, there, the uh, the genocides, uh, but also the kind of ecological disruption that
0: follows as well. Right. So I suppose this would be the uh, the origin of some alternate terms for the Anthropocene, like capitalocene or homojocene in which the kind of homogeneity of, of, of biospheres, of, of ecosystems has resulted from, as, you, as you're mentioning, some of these exchanges facilitated by global trade and travel that, that developed uh, through, the, the, through the development of capitalism and has accelerated more recently. Yeah, I mean, so uh, how then does, a, do, does literature fit into this? I mean, I can see how geologists would be interested in thinking about the Anthropocene as a kind of taxonomical... Marker, you know the golden spike. When does it begin? How does poetry or literature help us understand the Anthropocene differently? The Anthropocene
1: it could be defined narrowly, uh, simply to do with changes in the function of the Earth system, um, and that that would sit squarely within a, a small number of disciplines: um, geology, amongst them, earth uh, science, um, and, and and so on. But the Anthropocene is also an imaginative crisis if you like. It's a, it's, it's a fundamental change in how we understand ourselves as individuals and as a species in relation to the planet. It, it requires us to adjust our um, imaginary, giving us different frameworks um, for thinking about how do we relate to the world around us. Um, the Anthropocene is, is I think, uh, it's something that affects every discipline every area of life it touches upon all aspects of of how we live and how we think how we feel and therefore it's incumbent upon uh, literary studies as it is on any other discipline to reflect on that to, to consider that, that challenge and the, the the changes that we're that we're seeing and and think about how how do we respond on our own terms you know to the anthropocene as as this this rupture in my relationship with
0: the planet. Right. And what we call the environmental crisis is a, a product or a function of many of these changes that have taken place in the Anthropocene. I think it's Lawrence Buell who says, you know, the environmental crisis is also, it's not simply a crisis of technology, it's also a crisis of the imagination, which you point out in, in your book. And so you're right, this sort of draws in all kinds of other disciplines. It, it's not simply really about science, it's about culture too. And certainly, the changes that have taken place Are reflective of a particular kind of cultural approach to to the planet to resources to um you know to life ultimately
1: and it's about stories as well i mean i think we really do need to come to terms with the fact that you know the the actions that we're taking now the decisions that we take have a really long legacy. They'll leave traces and um, they'll shape conditions on the planet that will persist for millennia in some cases. And to think about that as, as a kind of storytelling, as, as as setting in train stories that will play out over countless human generations, I think brings the Anthropocene um, and its implications right to the heart of, of, of literary studies, of, of writing, of
0: literature in general. Well, let me ask let me ask a related question, because I mean, we were talking about the Anthropocene in the context of geology and, and scientific disciplines, but of course, you, you want to extend this idea to to larger cultural practices. But um, engagements with science play a significant role in the poetry that you examine in your book. I'm thinking of the kind of ecological quadrat that would be used uh, for ecological science that Larkin uses in thinking about clumps of woodland. Or beekeeping, apiology, polymer chemistry, in Riley, genetic engineering, and Christian books, xenotext. Um, does a poetics of the Anthropocene call out for an integration between art and science? Do do the poets need to get together with the scientists? Is this one of the one way of, sort of reading the kinds of consequences or, or uh, repercussions of, of of your book, of the kinds of arguments that you're making?
1: I think yeah, collaboration is is essential. Um, it, you know, it, it's through collaboration that we are going to respond positively if we respond positively to the challenges ahead. Um, and I, I think there's, there's a great deal to be gained from this kind of collaborative exercise where, where poets and scientists get together and explore the different ways in which they perceive and pursue patterns. I mean, this is this is something I think that is Uh, A a kind of common denominator and fundamental to to both practices is is this this endeavor to notice, to pay attention and to see pattern, whether that's pattern in sound or pattern in terms of chemical reactions and what can be predicted. There's a great deal to be gained from from this kind of collaborative working. And it's something that I was really struck by in in terms of anatomic, uh, your most recent collection
0: sure um i'll just say also that you know i completely agree with your characterization of, of uh, pattern recognition and the importance of that to both science and art i mean it seems to me that you know science and art at their disciplinary limits are ultimately engagements with with patterns with yoking disparate forms of thinking together i mean this is how we solve problems you know reaching into unexpected territories of knowledge uh in order to attempt to find some common links that might help us look at a problem differently Uh, And certainly, I mean, my interest in in poetry is very much related to this. I am interested in looking at scientific practices and procedures as a way of reimagining poetic forms and methods. Uh, What might uh, these intellectual pursuits through experimental uh, scientific practices offer a kind of poetry? It seeks to to reframe or rescale some cultural questions that have a bearing on some of these uh, larger environmental issues that of course themselves are bound up with scientific practices and data. My uh, most recent book, Anatomic, was an attempt really to look at how the outside writes the inside, so how our environment writes our bodies. Uh, uh for for good and for bad so to speak uh, so what i did was i tested my body for chemicals and microbes i tested myself my blood and my urine for a whole suite of chemicals uh, flame retardants uh phthalates pcbs heavy metals insecticides all kinds of things i followed the um the protocols actually used by the centers for disease control and prevention in the united states and also health canada in you know in canada as well to sort of uh you looked at some of their biomonitoring protocols and i use those as my precedents. um and so so you know through this i was able to look at the way in which my body is is written over by my environment in all kinds of uh, potentially toxic ways in terms of the pollution that i found inside my blood and my urine um But I wanted to balance this approach with looking at the way in the context of evolutionary history, the body has always been overwritten, so to speak, by its environment. And so I sequenced my microbiome as well, because, you know, there's all kinds of evidence now to suggest that the microbiome, the microbes on and in our bodies play extremely, if not vital roles in making us human, in keeping us alive. You know, there are um, neurotransmitters. The vast majority of serotonin, for example, in your body, about 90, 95% of it is produced by microbes in your gut. Uh, and the serotonin is an essential neurotransmitter necessary for modulating moods and personalities. So in a sense, we kind of outsource the maintenance or production of our personalities to these non-human organisms. And I find that I find that fascinating. And there's all kinds of other examples of how microbes play necessary roles in physiological development and the maintenance of the healthy immune system. And so I wanted to put these two things in tension. How is the outside writing the inside? And how might I uh, create this kind of catalog of these chemicals and organisms, and then attempt to, in a sense, try to to tell their own biographies. What stories do they have uh, in the context of evolutionary, cultural, in, industrial, military, political history? Because some of these chemicals, for example, have very interesting uh, political histories. And the microbes themselves have, have fascinating relationships with evolutionary history and also with culture. And so I um, I've wanted to find, I've essentially used the book as a way to kind of tell these stories, but inflected through uh, my own body uh, as, a, as a way of looking at a kind of you know, metabolic poetics. Here's my body situated within the global circulation of energy and capital. If we want to think of that as a kind of metabolism, the way that the, the energy flows around the planet, the kinds of exchanges and, and circulation of, of money and, and oil that uh, maintain that kind of me- metabolism and how that inevitably writes the local metabolism of human and non-human bodies. Right? We're always connected. I mean, this is another way, I suppose, that I think of the Anthropocene as an example of this sort of these metabolic connections um, between the global and the local and how it's possible. It was possible for me to look into my blood and see the signature of a multinational company, in this case, Monsanto, which raised all kinds of questions for me. Uh, And so, yeah, I was, this is really what Anatomic was trying to do.
1: Yeah, it's it's such a fascinating project. And I, I, I love the way that, you know, the initial collaboration gives rise to so many other kinds of, of collaboration and connection. As, as you said, this, this idea that, you know, that, that we are being written by what's within us, by the communities that dwell within us, and the way that connection just proliferates. I, I mean, did it have any significant effect on your sense of, of your own practice? What really struck me, in particular reading it, it was, I is I'm not entirely able to tell reading this collection where the poems begin or where they end. I feel like I'm just, you know, more than perhaps you would get even in a conventional collection, that this is just a snapshot on, on some much larger uh, and open-ended process. I mean, I mean, these poems begin in one sense in a, in a lab before they, they find their way anywhere near
0: the page. Oh, uh, definitely, definitely. It was very challenging. I, I mean, of course I was really, uh, well, i would tell you that I got the idea for this book as a result of a book I'd written previously on plastics called The Polymers. And as I was researching that book, I discovered and sort of thought more carefully about endocrine disruptors, which are chemicals, uh, additives to plastic. And so as I was researching plastics, I I was interested in this and I was sort of thinking about, all right, well, you know, I mean, how might one play with this as a kind of endocrine disruptor as a kind of poetic form, but also, you know, what would it mean to sort of think of this as a kind of poetics, or the endocrine system itself in the body, right? That sort of exchange of hormonal messages that's always maintaining a, a, the inside of our body in relation to an exterior, right? When you're hungry, your endocrine system releases uh, hormonal cues uh, to make you, you know, make your st- stomach rumble, etc. When you're cold, shiver. I mean, all these things are sort of hormonal cues prompted by the endocrine system. So uh, this system of messages really fascinated me, and I wanted to. It occurred to me to think of this as a kind of poetics. And so that's how I moved into into thinking about, well, okay, what if I get my whole body tested? What can I do with this data? But of course, the data itself became this huge thing. I generated an enormous amount of it. I mean, there's there's some interesting stories about um, difficulties I had. I had to send a stool sample across the border, for example, which at first was quite difficult because it was considered a biohazard. But... Turning it into poetry was a real challenge for me, something I still think quite a bit about. Well, I come
1: back often to, to Lynn Hygienian's idea of, the, of poetry as a form of inquiry, that the language of poetry is a language of inquiry. It's, it's not so much a, a genre as, as a mode of finding out. That's you know, what underpins my, you know, my idea about Anthropocene poetics, that poetry can be a way to, to give us frames for thinking about the challenges of the Anthropocene.
0: You know, it seems to me that poetry is that form of writing that most lives at the limits of writing. And it seems to be endocrine disruptors and, and uh, you know, the effects of some of these chemicals is, a, constitutes a form of extreme writing, if you like. And so I've in many ways, poetry was the most appropriate form, artistic response to this, to sort of think of if, if it's writing that's taking place in the endocrine system, well, what kind of writing art might one bring to bear on this?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, there's a there's a great deal of affinity I think and it's really striking as well um, how much intimacy is a concern I mean I, you and I have talked about this before about, about how much touch is a preoccupation in anatomic one of the lines that that has stayed with me you know since the first time I read it is, is the things we touch touch us back um, which I think Resonates so in so many different ways with this Anthropocene condition we find ourselves in. But intimacy is um, is uh, is one of the, the primary concerns I, I have as well in defining an Anthropocene poetics. It's it's this sense of the proximity we have um, to things that we might you know otherwise have thought very different, distant from us. Whether that's you know the, the deep future effects of atmospheric carbon or um, you know that the intimacy we have with future generations who will live in a in a planet that is is profoundly affected by our legacy of excess carbon in the atmosphere or whether it's you know more immediate term intimacies now like you know people who live in, in the, the Niger Delta who have to live in an extractivist environment because of our demand for fossil fuels. So intimacy is fundamental I think to to the Anthropocene it's a condition in which we are crowded by all kinds of intimate relation that, that we, we, you know, it's incumbent upon us not to ignore any longer.
0: Can you say a little bit more about uh, how intimacy works or the kind of poetics, the different, maybe the different poetics of intimacy that function in the poets that you chose to include in in your book? I mean, some of them work, you we were talking about sort of, you know, important lyric poets, but also we're talking about quite experimental writers.
1: Yeah, um, the starting point for the book was... The question: what, what does it mean to live unfolded in deep time? So, when when I first started to think about the Anthropocene, I, I had lots of conversations with colleagues at the University of Edinburgh where I work. I was part of a reading group that we call the Deep Time Reading Group, and this question kept coming up that that we you know we we need to reconsider our relationship with the you know the very deep past and the deep future to come that that these seemingly very distant temporalities intrude on on our present in in all kinds of ways um, that we are kind of unfolded by deep time and uh, that it, it it shapes the you know the world we live in um, you know the, the deep time of the earth is 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 not static it's always in process but also we uh, are drawing upon um, the resources of the past um in order to create a certain present for ourselves, but which will also create the present that many generations have to live in for millennia to come. And it's it's that crowding. It's that it's that sense of, of what seem is seemingly very distant, um, you know, coming up very close. Um, that you know deep time is is a part of our everyday lives it's conventional to think about the lyric poem as as a kind of a snapshot of an intimate moment where you you see through the eyes of another person briefly and and you know it, it was uh, in part that sense of the poem's potential to encapsulate um, many different times in a seemingly small compass um to it was the richness uh, almost the viscosity of the lyric poem. As a starting point for me, uh, that, that that was my you know, how I began to think about you know poetry's uh, capacity to to give shape to this curious intimacy of the Anthropocene, and it was you know, from there I began to think about what other kinds of poetry can more experimental forms of uh, more innovative traditions also you know give us different expressions of this this curiously intimate moment that we're living
0: through. Right. So in some ways, it's it, what, what you're saying sounds interesting to me, as, as though it were, um, you know, the distinction between innovative and lyric might, in fact, not necessarily be sort of helpful here. What, Or I should say, it's not necessarily a dramatic form of distinction, as it is one of a focus, uh, of sort of transferring that, you know, focus of intimacy, perhaps shifting it from one dimension to another, shifting scale a little bit. Uh, I mean, certainly, you know, if you look at the, the experimental poetry of... Uh, Riley, I mean, she's still, in a sense, looking at this question of intimacy, but it's just done from a slightly different scale than, say, Elizabeth Bishop or Haney, right? I mean, so, so you end up with a different kind of poetry emerging from that, but perhaps the impulse behind it is not necessarily that different. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the impulse behind this is, is an, an impulse outwards, you know you were talking about the interplay between the inside and the outside and i think so much of you know we think of, of poetry as as a movement inwards you know a kind of inward looking that's the stereotype and often we do find poetry is, is a fantastic space in which to do that kind of inward um searching but i i'm also interested in the, in the way so much of this um of the poetry i was looking at is is oriented outwards um, and and that to me is is in a sense fundamental to a kind of lyric sensibility that I see at play in all of the poets I've looked at, regardless of whether they look like or sound like lyric poets. Peter Riley, um, who's a, a fantastic poet who, who seems to to sort of straddle a boundary between lyric and more experimental forms, talks about lyric as not not a not a kind of poetry, um, but a technique to create the illusion of song. Yeah, but but it's it's not just the song is not just a sound. Uh, it's not just it's not just a kind of a musicality. Um he says song is collective. It's about drawing other voices into communion. And I really think that that's what joins um, you know the poetry of Seamus Heaney and Elizabeth Bishop to that of Evelyn Riley and um, and, and Christian Book, which is is this Sense of, of openness, of, of opening out to connection, and you know, coupled with you know this this pursuit of you know what does it mean to be living in intimacy with with deep time in the Anthropocene, was, uh, the things that kind of bound this this admittedly quite quite eclectic group of poets together.
0: Let's talk a little bit about uh, the Klineman. In Anthropocene Poetics, I uh, completely adore your idea of the Klineman here as uh, as something at the heart of kin making. Um, that dynamic of swerving or veering—that this is what makes kin making possible. Uh, this is the sort of culminating chapter of, of your book. Uh, I, I I love it in part because you know it links art with community in in such a lovely way. Can you talk about the the genesis of this idea in your book, the clinnaman?
1: Yeah, so the clinamen is a—it's as Stephen Greenblatt puts it, it's the swerve that sets off a ceaseless chain of collisions. Um, and I think really thinking about clinamen, you know, as a dynamic in a poem, you know, a, a turn, whether it's uh, a metaphor, whether it's it's apostrophe. Actually, began for me in thinking in in reading the work of environmental uh, humanities scholars like Tom Van Doren, Deborah Bird Rose, and their idea of how life moves through deep time. Tom Van Doren's concept of the flight way—that all you know, all creatures follow a kind of evolutionary path, a line through deep time uh, that he calls their flight way—and that you know, this depending on all kinds of factors, interactions. you know, these light ways can take any number of branching paths that really, you know, that, that way of thinking about life situated in deep time really resonated with me. I was really looking for a, a figure that could articulate that in in the poem. And so that's where the idea of the, the Klineman came from, because, you know, we are we are kin making beings as as donna Haraway reminds us we're we're ceaselessly engaged in turning towards other other creatures other beings as it were you know know, making connections which is something that i think is right at the heart of anatomic as well you know which is a you know a fascinating account apart from many other things of of the ceaseless operations of kin making you know whether we like it or not we're all involved in. Um, and so the Klinemans seem to be a figure for this, this this um, expansive way of thinking about our connectedness to all of all life, as it were.
0: Yeah, um, no, it's, uh, and of course, it has a, a rich history, as you, as you pointed out, um, related to to Lucretius, but also a very serious integrations of art and science, but of course, it, it manifests itself more recently in all kinds of more playful approaches to poetics and art. I'm thinking of pataphysics, for example, oh, the clinamen as a kind of swerve, or I think you mentioned your book, what is it, a, a, a bestial poetics or something, uh, forget the exact quotation, Jari's quote of the, uh, or his description of the clinamen. It's the unforeseen beast, he calls it. No, that's it. Thank you. Thank you. The unforeseen beast, exactly.
1: It, it really calls to it calls to mind that that sense of not just the unexpected, but, you know, the, you know, the animal elements, you know, because so much of of, of the kind of kin making that I was interested in was to do with our, our multi species relationships.
0: Right, right. Um, can, can you talk also a little bit about uh, how the plenumine, uh, the swerving dynamic might connect to your idea of a diffraction based or even a kind of diffractive methodology that you potentially employ here in your, in your study? Now, what, is, what is diffraction and how is it important to, to your work, to your book?
1: So the diffraction uh, describes the coexistence of waves in a space, in, in a kind of superposition. So if you, if you have a, uh, whether it's uh, light or sound or water passing through a series of, of narrow grates, diffraction grates, the waves that that proceed um as as it as it passes through the great will begin to overlap. Um, and this is for uh, for Karen Baradaf a kind of figure of the principle of interaction, the way in which um forces collaborate um to create conditions, to create the world, as it were. Um, and it seems to me a really powerful way of thinking about our entanglement in, in a whole range of, of relationships that we have become numb to, numbs to, immune to, and uh, blind to. But, you know, we, we tend to think of ourselves as as um, separate, you know, the, the nature culture binary has, uh, you know, has the sort of roots of, um, I think, of our, of our society, the way we think of ourselves, that negates a whole series of complex entangled interrelationships that are fundamental to, to making us human. And so I kind of diffractive poetics is, is um, I guess, a, a way of uh, thinking with differences that make a difference, as um, uh, as Karen Barad puts it, uh, finding ways to uncover the, the entangled connectedness in in circumstances that might seem very homogenous um, or uh or very thin so one of the, the examples uh i give of that in uh in Anthropocene poetics i look at the work of evelyn riley and her collection styrofoam which thinks about um the you know the liveliness of plastic a material that we tend to think of as very inert plastics i mean it almost appears i think in many respects in our everyday lives as a kind of absence we tend not to see it we're so used to it um so it's it been absorbed into our sensorium um and yet plastic is an, is an intensely lively material as well as a very long-lived one in the way in which it interacts with its environments and so i a, a kind of a, a diffractive poetics is a way of, of, of reading work like riley's that looks to explore that sense of liveliness and interactivity and, and connection that um you know, lies just behind that impression of absence and and uh, fixity
0: yeah no that's uh that's that's wonderful uh, i really like the uh... Uh, you know, your use of uh, Barad's did the difference that makes a difference. But it's interesting to me too, because that's also Gregory Bateson's definition of the sign. But speaking of differences that make a difference, I mean, entanglements. You know, your your book explores the way in which these poems manifest and engage with all kinds of entanglements. Um, at the end of your book, you also quote Auden and his famous line, "Poetry makes nothing happen." And I'm just wondering here. So at the end, you know, thinking about the the significance of of these poets' work, I mean. And thinking about the Anthropocene also really as a real kind of cultural question for us, as a political issue as well. What do we do? You know, how? How? What kind of activism is possible uh, in the face of you know all that we have done, the anthropogenic pollution? What is the role here? Or do you do you see the poets that you've been looking at and their engagement with entanglements, temporal entanglements, spatial entanglements, conceptual entanglements? Do you see them as 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 activists? Is activism the right word here? I mean, or again, is you know is there another way that you would characterize the work of these poems and poets? Mindful, of course, uh, as you point out, of Timothy Clark's caution that you know eco critics tend to overestimate the role of culture and behavior change.
1: Yeah, I think I think you know we must always be cautious about the claims we make for poetry, and I think you know Auden's cautioned that. Um, poetry makes nothing happen is is a is is a useful um limit to put on on maybe some more ambitious claims that we might make as eco critics but for me, poetry is about language um any poem, regardless of what its um its subject might seem to be, is also thinking about language, thinking about poetry and what poetry is what language does how it works to create. Our sense of the world, um, and I think that's what—that's the contribution that poetry can make, however modest that might be. And I certainly don't think that it's—it's it's poetry that's going to save us. But I think when we can, when we do turn to, to poetry, we can find resources that help us to think about how we construct our sense of the world and how we construct our sense of an anthropocenic world. How we, how we reimagine our relationship with the planet and with deep time as well
0: yeah that's right I, I i agree i mean i think that you know poetry offers us um the ability to ask questions that we haven't asked before to to render legible that which is otherwise illegible uh in in uh, various cultural contexts and i think that you know sometimes we get caught up in demanding the work of art somehow you know lead the revolution as though it should become you know that then turn into some kind of policy that will uh, give us uh, the, the utopian uh, world that we desire but of course it can't do that. I mean art doesn't do that but, but art can you know provoke us to look at the world differently in a way in a way that can uh, you know enable us to ask questions that we haven't asked before or engage with marginalized perspectives and come to different conclusions of things and therefore you know assist in building the world that we want. Um, but yeah, so I take your point here about the way that entanglement is functioning, the poets that you' that you're examining. Um, I ask as well, I mean, you you wrote this book, Anthropocene Poetics, but you have also recently written another book called Footprints, uh, which is a nonfiction book that engages with a lot of the same subjects. How was the process of writing these books different for you? Yeah, so so footprints,
1: um, which is has the subtitle "In Search of Future Fossils," is really a, an inquiry into what our traces will be in the very deep future. You know what will be left of us and how we lived, in terms of the materials that we leave behind, um, the impressions we leave. In the rock record uh, the chemical traces and, and and the reshaped world that we leave, and I, I wanted to really just find ways to tell the story that i was you know i felt really passionate about you know i, I really feel that it's, it's vital that we embrace our relationship with with deep time that we think about ourselves as having an impact on the deep future uh it's this question you know how how do we become how do we act as good ancestors is, is the fundamental question of our time i think and so footprints was a way to uh, perhaps pose some of those same questions about our relationship with deep time and, and these very urgent questions about our relationship with deep time, in ways that might draw in other kinds of constituencies of, of readers. Really, it's all about telling stories. I think you know any of the future fossils that I look at in in the book, whether it's you know what will be the fate of our cities, what will be the legacy of our nuclear waste, our plastic, our effect on biodiversity uh, and on the oceans. It's all. Uh, Thinking about these legacies as stories, as as things we will be remembered for. You know, our descendants will live in a world profoundly shaped by us, full of the traces of how we lived. Um, our concrete, our plastic, our nuclear waste, our carbon in the atmosphere, and so on. Um, and they will, you know, they'll find both that, you know, that world is speaking a story about us back to them. And they'll take that story and interpret it and tell it to themselves. So, you know, I was really motivated by this question of of how do we want to be remembered? Um, We are creating all kinds of legacies for ourselves. What do we want those legacies to be?
0: Yeah, I was really I was really struck by your book. It's, uh, it's, It's a wonderful book, the way it's divided, the way it explores different stories around very particular, well, that, you know, might appear to be particular objects or phenomena like roads, ice, coral, nuclear waste, plastics, microbes, etc. But of course, you come away after reading the book with the, the connections between all of these things. Um, but, you know, I, you know, as I was reading your book as well, I couldn't help but think about the way in which my own experience writing an Atomic was a kind of experience with seeing footprints. Uh, when. I saw, for example, PCBs in my blood or DDT. I mean, these are chemicals that were banned in some cases before I was born. But there they are, right? They're the footprints of previous generations uh, that are in my body. And so it made me think about, you know, the ways, you know, are are there other examples of footprints that humans bear or will bear as we go forward? Will our future relatives look back at us through bodies changed by our behavior? You know, in some ways we already do. It's a, it's a, it's another way of sort of you know I the, the foot your footprints and your, the concept of the footprint became quite intimate to me as as a function of the research that I've been doing.
1: Yeah, fascinating. You know, and I'd absolutely see the 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 resonance between what you're doing in in anatomic and what I what I was doing in in footprints. I mean, I think I think yeah, you're absolutely right to say that you know that. The body is at the centre. You know, the vulnerability of bodies is right at the heart of this. I mean, in, in thinking about our relationship with deep time, we need to guard against that sense of, of a kind of chilly um, overview. You know, that that sense of a kind of an extrapolated perspective, where you know, where the, the individual, or the, you know, where life gets lost. Um, you know, I'm. You know, I think it's it's absolutely essential to think about the most vulnerable bodies who are exposed to the you know, you know the devastations of the Anthropocene. So, uh, yeah, the, the the imprints of the Anthropocene are on. Bodies in all kinds of ways, whether that you know, the bodies that are picking up, um, you know, the, the kind of trace plastics that, that you write about, um, or bodies that are at the kind of front line of other kinds of um, precarity, you know, whether it's extreme weather or, or sea level rise, um, and so on. But I think we also have to think about this in in relation to you know our connection to
0: future generations. You know. I mean, in thinking about my own work and the way in which I have been focusing on my own body and using my own body as a kind of uh subject guinea pig for these experiments, you know, I I want to stress that I'm, you know, I'm acutely aware of the way that my body is marked by certain demographic privileges. But I'm also interested in the strange sort of I guess what I see as a kind of democratizing power of this form of pollution and biological colonization when I think about the chemicals and the microbes. You know, it's important to recognize that the chemical and microbial signatures may, may be different for distinct communities of people, and, and that is the case, uh, but the chemicals and microbes are in all of us. But of course, I, I do not want to minimize the fact that, um, you know, social class, race, uh, gender, all kinds of factors come into play But you know, especially in, in terms of poverty and, and race, you know, where people live. You know, uh, people with less resources are more likely to live in more polluted parts of cities, et cetera, Or or to, to suffer, um, you know, racism from governments I mean, in Canada. I did try to write a little bit about this in, in Anatomic, when I discovered mercury inside my body, I, it made me think about my own relationship to mercury poisoning in Canada as a privileged southern settler in Ontario. Um, I you know, couldn't help but think about the way in which an um, in, in, in indigenous community in northwestern Ontario has been suffering mercury poisoning for 50 years, you know, as a, and the successive governments have failed to respond to this. So, I mean, so, you know, the chemicals and microbes are in all of this, but there are, of course, differences to think about here when it comes to privilege. Um, and so, you know, this is one of the challenges. Uh, of my work. But, you know, I'm, I, I do think that there's something useful in terms of thinking about the bodies, biological processes, metabolic processes, and the necessary connection between all of us, between our local metabolism and the global metabolism of gene capital. Uh, and I think it's important to ask these kinds of questions. But it is also important to be mindful of necessary differences and, and, and questions of privilege as well
1: yeah absolutely absolutely um i think i think that that's absolutely right and you know the, these are you know it, it's it's true to say as well that you know the, the the kind of colonial legacies that you find written in the body now will be written in the you know in the body of the earth um in in the deep future to come you know? The you know the, the the traces of of colonial extraction, the, the legacies of empire, are going to be written yeah. into the geological record. You know the the, the stories that that are told. By our future fossils, will you know? In part, there'll be stories of ingenuity—the fact that that you know Earth was home to civilizations that could create such lasting monuments or or materials. Um, but they're stories of inequality as well, and they will be, I think, just as apparent for, um, or available to be interpreted uh, for anyone who happens to be around and able to do so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I sort of I'm interested in thinking about this in, in terms of Mackenzie Wark has, has talked about in Molecular Red about the kinds of metabolic rifts that have been in global uh, um, metabolic processes like the, you know, the global warming, uh, the, uh, the greenhouse effect is the result of a metabolic rift. Carbon dioxide is accumulating in the atmosphere. You know, the nitrogen cycle, as you point out in your book, has been has been interrupted. The rifts have been introduced into various cycles. But you could also argue that socially, we also have metabolic rifts. I mean, income inequality is a form of metabolic rift where capital is not distributed equally around the planet. I mean, obesity epidemic are another form of, of income inequality. I'm doing some research now on metabolism and trade deals. I discovered that after the, the, the first Canadian free trade deal in the mid-80s, the caloric intake of Canadians went up by around 150 calories a day. Uh, simply as a result of the d- the different uh, constituents in food products that resulted as a, as a result of this free trade deal, so you know, the free trade deals affect bodies uh, in all kinds of ways, including their metabolism. So this was another example of a relationship between circulation of global capital and the rift that's happening there and the local rifts in our own meta, uh, you know, personal biological metabolism.
1: Yeah. That's. I mean, it's fascinating, and I really look forward to seeing where you go with that. And it's really striking to me that I think a, a point of common interest for both of us is is that sense of the immediacy of the Anthropocene that you know that we need to think of ourselves as Anthropocenic bodies. That the Anthropocene is not just a, a context that we engage with and then step away from. That it, you know it's in us and through us. It's it's the the situation that we are absorbed by. Yeah, so that, that really resonates with me that that I think, you know, to think of ourselves as, as bodies of the Anthropocene or Anthropocenic bodies is, is a really important part of this, this imaginative shift that we need to undergo.
0: That's right, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're already products of this. Uh, you know, I, I also, I found uh, uranium in my, in my blood uh, yeah. and it, I, it's sort of, uh, I, as I talked to the toxicologists about it, there are various possible sources for this. One of them would have been the fact that I spent the first 18 years of my life drinking uh, water that came right out of the Canadian Shield, where I grew up in Ontario, which would have uranium in it. But we couldn't rule out the possibility that some of that uranium reflects the fact that, you know, I am a child of the Cold War as well. And the nuclear testing happened around that time. Those signatures we also bear. Yeah. Yeah, that
1: reminds me of something else that was really striking about the book, which, because it's such a, a personal book, anatomic and, and an intimate one. I found it so um, powerfully inclusive, because although, you know, everything was about what information is being drawn from your own body, and particularly to yourself, of course, that's a story that all of us would be able to tell in some sense or another. And it really spoke to me about the the complexity of identification and address in the Anthropocene, you know, there's this fraught sense of we that that comes up again and again and debates around the Anthropocene you know, who is who's included in that, who's excluded, and we always need to keep wrestling with uh, the difficulty of that because while it is a fraught endeavour, you know, to, to claim a kind of blanket identification, um, you know, and there's all kinds of risks of erasure. We still, I think, need to be reaching out for connection for for a sense of. of Commonality or of collectivity, um, and and the way in which your your own story, which you, you very rigorously frame as, as one that is marked by by certain kinds of demographic privileges, as you say, is still in some sense this you know my story and the story of, of people who live in very different kinds of demographic situations, as 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 you said earlier. So I was really struck by the the way in which this very intimate collection is, is, is nonetheless an extremely inclusive one at the same time.
0: Uh, thank you, David, for that. I appreciate those comments. I mean, I certainly, that, I, I'm, I was aiming for that kind of uh, complex entanglement. I mean, yes, of course, uh, the book is about my body, but it's about all kinds of other things, too. It's about other bodies. It's about um, different kinds of temporalities. It's, it's about uh, the ways in which substances uh, you know, affect all of us. But, you know, so I, I'm mindful, of course, of the, the, you know, the difficulty, the potential problems with assuming a kind of universality when it comes to these experiences. But, you know, intimacy or being able to offer a kind of intimate engagement with some of these questions, I felt is all I could do or, the, you know, it was, it was what I wanted to do. And I'm glad that that, that came through. So which poets do you think are addressing the Anthropocene in
1: the most interesting ways at the moment?
0: well i mean certainly i'm interested in i think brenda hillman is doing some fantastic work uh, especially her tetralogy about the classic life elements of air water earth and fire Um, angela rawlings a canadian poet uh, a canadian icelandic american poet uh, her work on geopoetics uh, as well as on sleep and lepidoptery she does very interesting combinations between those two which is sort of specifically attuned to uh, multi-species metabolic intersections, the kinds of things that interest me. Uh, Harriet Mullen, I I love her work. I especially love her experiments on the social, racial, ecological metabolism of the non-place of the supermarket. That little chapbook of her, a shorter poetry book of hers a few years ago, I think is just phenomenal. More recent writers, I would say, um, well, Juliana Spar's The Transformation, I think is an extraordinary book, a kind of ethnobotanical exploration of Cultural Infection, uh, Precipitated by Immersion, in the Complex Politics of Hawaii and 9-11. Uh, Jen Bervin's recent book, Silk Poems, uh, it's a nanoscale poetic work on a silk biosensor designed to be implanted as a metabolic monitoring device into a human body. So it's, she's written this little poem on on this device that can be implanted. Um, Alexis Pauline Gum's book, M-Archive, End of the World, sort of uh, thinking it metabolizes of energies and elements in the work of foundational Black feminist M. Jackie Alexander, and turns this into kind of, um, I guess, a kind of speculative post-apocalyptic research project uh, that examines the possibilities of being that exceed the human. I think it's a really fascinating book, sort of part novel, part poem. Um, Liz Howard, an Indigenous writer from Canada, her book uh, Infinite Citizen of the Shaking Tent. It's an amazing exploration of intersections between pollution, landscape, uh, and Indigenous identity. Uh, I love everything that uh, Dea Antensen and Ida Benke are doing as part of the Laboratory for Aesthetics and Ecology uh, out of Copenhagen and Berlin. They, uh, so, Morten Sondergaard's uh, Sugar Poems came out of that, which is an edible book that looks at the effects of sugar. Karen Belender, her her book, um, Raw Ass Milk Soap, which is a a favorite of mine, explores how uh, historical myths and memories are part of landscape and how those landscapes are, uh, she says, uh, inextricably intertwined with the fleeting, unwritten, embodied blood vessels and mammary glands of many species. She Basically, she made some soap out of ass milk, the the milk from an ass that she lived with. And, uh, you know, developed a kind of a practice that is both a writing and a kind of... uh, uh artisanal soap making practice quite extraordinary actually oh i could go on and on i mean uh, amanda ackerman's the book of feral flora where she sort of develops a method of allowing uh, plants to respond via electrical stimuli to contribute to the poem things like this i'm sort of interested in the kind of multi-species metabolic angles that writers are doing right now to kind of respond to their uh, contemporary historical moment i mean those are just a few there's all kinds of course
1: it's such an exciting time, absolutely. I mean, I'd, I'd add just a couple of names to that. Um, Craig Santos Perez's ongoing from unincorporated territory se- series, I think, is is a really important body of work and becoming more so in in its formal range and its its attention to so many different related contexts in terms of climate change, colonialism, and uh, and so on. Um, and I was really struck recently, just going back to to lyric. By Sean Hewitt's new collection *Tongues of Fire*, which is, is you know, in, you know, very squarely in a kind of lyric tradition of song, but, but you know, explores the situation of a gay man in in a landscape that is is sometimes hostile, but also incredibly rich and giving, and uh, you know, just beautiful, beautiful poems of of a kind that you know I think don't come along very often
0: yeah yeah absolutely this sounds sounds amazing i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to check out that collection yeah it's great yeah give it a go yeah i mean in in terms of uh contemporary writing especially a lot of the theorizing around the anthropocene and art a lot of it from from what i can tell maybe you disagree i don't know but it's been it's been framed through uh, approaches to visual art and thinking critically around visual art And, and certainly um you know, I, I, But you are, are taking a different approach, looking at writing, looking at poetics, which I think is a kind of a emerging take on this. Uh, so I was interested in you know, your approach, your angle here through writing, but I was also intrigued by the fact that uh, you begin each chapter with a discussion of visual art. Why, why was that? Why did you choose to sort of uh, uh, feature art in that way in a book on, on poetics?
1: Yeah, well, it's it, it's also where the book started. I, I mentioned earlier that this question of what does it mean to live unfolded by deep time was what kind of animated the project. But one of the things that provoked that question was that, uh, a photograph of the artist Ilana Halperin boiling a pan of milk in uh, a geothermal lake in in Iceland, and it, it's it's an image that is now actually the cover of Anthropocene Poetics. It really spoke to me of this, this confluence of, of deep time and and the intimate, you know, the intimacy of this of this gesture of boiling a small pan of milk and all of that, that summons of uh, you know associations of, of nurture um, and the, the quotidian, the everyday, you know, the the ordinariness of it, really struck me. Um, and it was from there that I began to think about, you know, what does it mean to to live in, in intimacy with deep time? What are the implications of this for thinking about the Anthropocene? And having started with, you know, a kind of visual prompt, a kind of a uh, figure, for um, framing these questions, it seemed to me a good way to to move to move on. Uh, and you know, other artworks began to suggest themselves. The uh, chapter on Ethan Riley and Peter Larkin is prefaced by uh, an artwork uh, by a scottish artist called julia barton called litter cube Um, and it's a it's a massive um, pet uh, strapping um, basically marine waste that she gathered from from beaches around scotland and formed into a cube that she then Displays alongside a kind of uh, itemization of of the uh, chemical contents of this, so that you know what you know what's the energy quotient of this in terms of its fossil fuel um, ingredients and so on. And it's it's a really striking image. It's a it's a brilliant white cube of all these kind of tangled plastic threads and fibres against this dark black background. And it really spoke to me of that sense that, you know, plastic, you know, presents itself to us as this kind of blank, this absence, but actually, it's a deeply rich, and lively, um, lively material. And it's it, the photograph really drew out that sense of the liveliness behind the ostensibly inert. And so these these visual figures just seem to act as, as prompts to kind of really frame the initial concept and, 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 and motivate the, the engagement with the poetry. But I think there's a lot of there's a lot of um, conversation I think between you know visual art and poetry, questioning what we pay attention to and how we pay attention to it. Um, they, you know both forms ask us to interrogate how and where we give our attention and our ways of suggesting pattern and relationship that we perhaps aren't always alert to.
0: Yeah, well, I, I thought that all those the works of art that you drew uh, attention to in the book are, are extremely interesting. And uh, you know, even uh, the last poet that you dealt with, Christian Book, you know, his uh, the product of that is also a form of visual art uh, in terms of I mean, I know he's displayed the um, the protein for the uh, the code that he's implanted into the microbe uh, as a form of visual art. And certainly the book is filled with all kinds of images. So there's all kinds of interplay, obviously, between the poetics and, and visual art. you you explore. Uh, Late in your book, David, you point out that an Anthropocene poetics must address the naughty problem of love among knotted beings, the challenge of loving those creatures that seem to withdraw from or resist relation, the faceless, the swarming, or even the microscopic, to quote you, this is such an interesting interesting idea. How does something like our relationship with the faceless microbe COVID-19, for example, uh, and the swerve that we might say that it represents on uh, so many different levels, how does it figure into this, if at all, in terms of thinking, entanglement, and the challenge, I suppose, of loving those creatures that seem to withdraw from or resist relation?
1: Yeah, I mean it. Yeah, that de- definitely does seem like a, a a sentence and a sentiment out of the the pre-pandemic past, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> of, of, a knotty problem of of loving COVID nineteen. Well, of course, I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't think we we can and or, or should, in in the conventional sense. But I, what I think love means here is a kind of acknowledgement, really. And an embracing of our interwovenness, of our, our fact of, the fact of our being kin with um, all kinds of life forms that we don't really think of as kin. Um, and so it's not necessarily a kind of a warm feeling um, towards yeah, such an unwelcome microbe uh, that has, as we say, kind of swerved so dramatically uh, into all of our lives. But I think, you know, we are where we are with. Uh, the pandemic, because of the way in which we have treated the natural
0: world. Notwithstanding all of the horrible things that are happening as a result of the pandemic, hopefully in the future, we might look back and see this as an opportunity to, in fact, love ourselves and our environment differently. Maybe something will emerge out of this, a different kind of social arrangement, a different kind of relationship with our environment, uh, a different relationship with public health, if nothing else, perhaps. Where we start to value things and realize, you know, that the things that we took for granted, like, for example, frontline workers, like all of those people doing uh, tasks that we would otherwise consider to be quite menial, you know, these are important people, and they deserve respect. They deserve uh, support. Uh, and so, th- this kind of realignment of priorities of resources, if this can emerge from the pandemic, then perhaps. That will, that will be a good thing, right? I mean, I, you know, there, uh, th- that story, of course, remains to be written. We won't know. You know, COVID-19 as a kind of swerve, as a kind of clinamen is an opportunity for a, a remaking of kin, if you like, in, in the world right now, where we can, you know, create different kinds of relationships and value things that we haven't been valuing that we should be.
1: Yeah. I mean, Arundhati Roy said something very similar, I think, a few months ago at the the very start of the pandemic, um, that, you know, it's a portal to another world. Um, It's a threshold. And I think absolutely, if we can see our way to, you know, rethinking what we value, who we value, how we express that, then some good can come out of this um, awful situation. I, th- I mean, I think, really, uh, we, we can't afford not to. We can't afford to go back, to, to fall back into the way things were. You know, the, the world has changed. The pandemic has altered how we travel, how we work. Some of these changes will be permanent. Um, and any attempt to just kind of recoup a, a former status quo will just lead to more destruction. We need to embrace the, the, you know, the, the change that has
0: come. We need new stories. We need new narratives. We do. Uh, you know, we do. the poetry, I suppose, uh, remains to be written.
1: Nothing's, you know, written in stone. Well, what I want to say is, you know, that, that there, are, you know, there are many futures foretold, but, you know, we still have a chance, I think, to determine the kind of world that we're going to live in and the one that we'll leave behind. And we need to embrace that opportunity um, before it really is too late.
0: Well, thank you, David. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Thanks, Adam. For more information, please visit z.umn.edu forward slash poetics.